Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm your host, Joel Cohen. Our guest today is Bill Simon, one of the nation's top experts on legal ethics and a professor at Columbia Law School. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for having me. What exactly makes money laundering any different than moving money from one place to another? Well, the essence of money laundering is the effort to conceal the connection between assets and illegal activity. So typically, somebody who either has assets that are the proceeds of illegal activity or that she is planning to use for illegal activity has them in a form or a location that is inconvenient, unsafe, or suspicious. And she wants to move them to a location or to a form that is safer, more convenient, and less suspicious. The organization Global Witness was involved in a program to show how the United States has become a hub. How is that, or why is it the United States is so central? Well, it's not entirely clear. Uh, Global Witness focuses on some features of American business organization law that permit the creation of business entities without the disclosure of beneficial owners. Now, the United States is not the only place that you can do that, but the United States is one of the, apparently one of the more desirable places for creating business entities on other grounds, and it combines its generally high-quality corporate practice with this potential for anonymity that makes it very attractive. What role did you play in that particular uh, investigation? Well, so Global Witness did 13 sting interviews in which they, a Global Witness agent purported to represent a corrupt African minister of mines who was anxious to hide proceeds of what looked like illegal activity. And they secretly taped interviews with 13 lawyers or sets of lawyers. Uh, Global Witness asked me to review five of those tapes to see whether they were consistent with legal ethics norms. What types of issues were you looking for? Well, I was looking for any issues, but the issues that I largely focused on were, first of all, the duty of the lawyer not to assist or counsel the client in illegal or fraudulent activity. And then secondly, the duty of the lawyer to the client, the duty of the lawyer to make clear to the client what the legal limits on her plans are. Global Witness sent an undercover investigator, one of their agents in, who purported to be acting on behalf of the Minister of Mines of a West African country. And I would want to be very frank because uh, otherwise I can't get you a proper advice. Uh, I'm working as advisor for a minister, minister of mines in a West African country. Now, because there is a competition, companies are happy to pay a, how should I name, facilitation fee commission? The minister, according to the uh, investigator, the, uh, what the investigator told the lawyers had accumulated a large fortune from payments from mining companies in return for mineral concessions in this country. So, uh, so he gave the spiel. He wanted help in transferring this money to the United States, using it to buy a brownstone, a jet airplane, and in some interviews he said also a yacht. 
And it was essential to the minister that his name not be connectable to these assets. And he wanted the lawyer's help in transferring the money, making the purchases in a way that would not associate his name with it. The minister, the uh, agent refused to tell the lawyers either the name of the minister or the country in which the minister was an official. I'm not telling you what country, what minister this is? No, I can't tell you. It's one of those uh, mineral-rich countries in West Africa. There are not so many. And how did the lawyers behave? So, the lawyer, and I should say, I, there were 13 interviews. I've only seen five of them. In one of them, and this is the only one I'm told in which this happened, the lawyer, when he heard the spiel, immediately said, this is not for me, I'm not going to help you, and showed the agent the door. And only one of the 13 did that happen, however. In the others, the lawyers continued the discussion and at least held out the possibility that they might assist. And in uh, four of the ones that I've seen, um, they went beyond that and actually actively marketed themselves, trying to impress the agent with various things that the lawyers might be able to do for the minister, and specifically outlined strategies that they might be able to implement for transferring and concealing the assets. Setting up shell companies, setting up companies that would then own other companies and the money would flow through there. Yes, and routing the money through certain jurisdictions where bank secrecy is strong but other regulation is lax. And a couple of them even suggested that they could run the money through their client trust accounts. So here, what, one of the concerns that you, were, that you had raised was facilitating crime. Yeah. So, a lawyer has a duty, yeah. I mean, a number of duties, but one of the core ones is that they're, they're not involved in committing crimes. Yes, and not involved, and don't give lawyers, clients advice that they could use to commit crimes, right? So the, the rule in question, of course, is 1.2D, which says that the lawyer shall not counsel or assist the client in illegal or fraudulent activity. Now, there are some ambiguities in applying that rule to this situation, although I concluded, and uh, the report I wrote was co-authored with John Lubsdorf of Rutgers, so we concluded that the lawyers in three of the interviews had you know, fairly clearly violated Rule 1.2. We run the country. You run the country? Still do. I love it. Still do. <laughs> I should say some lawyers run the country. <laughs> so you are, you are some of them? Two of them? Yeah, a small amount. We're still yes. members of, of a privileged, privileged class in this yeah. country. But I should note some ambiguities. Uh, first, the rule refers to counseling or assisting clients. Uh, in none of these interviews did the minister become a full-fledged client. The minister was a prospective client. Now, we think the rule pretty clearly applies to prospective clients, but that's a debatable issue. And for the interviews, the lawyers you know, actively and in detail outline strategies that might be used for doing this. B, which is owned jointly by company C and D, and your party owns uh, all of or the majority of the shares of C and D. So we, we create several companies. Yes. 
So they were giving advice to the client that, that might be helpful to the client in implementing these strategies. Um, now, some people have raised the question whether, in fact, the rules apply to a prospective client. Seems to me that the harm from empowering a prospective client to commit crimes is just as serious as the harm to empowering a full-fledged client to commit crimes. So I, I, for me, I don't have any problem in saying the rule applies in this case. One other issue is uh, the rule says the lawyer will not knowingly counsel or assist. But so this raises a question of willful ignorance? Yeah, or, willful ignorance, yes. Or the question of should the lawyer ask a limited number of questions so as to not know for certain that a crime is taking yeah. place. Yeah, so can you expand your autonomy to help people who are a little sketchy by avoiding knowledge? Okay, now the short answer to that, from my point of view, as both a prudential matter and an ethical matter, is no. Um, and let's just note three reasons why uh, uh, you shouldn't and probably can't do that. First of all, federal criminal law has a fairly strong doctrine about contrived ignorance that says that in a uh, criminal prosecution where scienter is an issue, the jury can infer knowledge from the fact that the defendant closed her eyes to signals that normally would have led somebody to follow up and get information. So if it's evident that you're deliberately avoiding information in the face of signals that say that there's a big risk that this is going to be a criminal activity, um, criminal doctrine may, in fact, uh, hold that you knew enough for a criminal liability. Uh, second point, um, the lawyer also has a duty to the client to make clear to the client when she is at risk of incurring criminal liability. And that duty was very much implicated in these interviews. That is, the client could well have gone away from some of these interviews thinking that what she wanted to do, what the minister wanted to do, was lawful, when in fact it was a high probability that it was not lawful. Finally, uh, third reason why I think uh, strategic ignorance is not going to fly um, is that there is a duty of due diligence. Um, clearly a duty of due diligence under the rules that say you have to give good advice to the client. You can't give good advice without surfacing all the relevant facts uh, in the course of formulating the advice. One other issue that was raised here was whether or not there's a duty to report, whether or not the, the lawyer may have an obligation to pass on information. And here this runs up against another core value of the attorney-client relationship, which is confidentiality. Yeah. There's a tension here between the international money laundering standards and the bars norms, as you suggest. So the international money laundering standards, so the, the Financial uh, Action Task Force, which is an intergovernmental group that promulgates standards for anti-money laundering regulation, and of which the US is a member, um, thinks that professionals, including lawyers, should have a duty um, both to do due diligence uh, with respect to transactions that involve a risk of money laundering, even more controversially, to report, quote, suspicious, unquote, activities. Uh, and then there's a third rule, which is the anti-tipping rule. If you report, you're not allowed to tell the client that you reported. Uh, those are not United States. So those are, those are standards promulgated by this intergovernmental organization of which the United States is a member. 
and which the United States purports in a general way to endorse. On the other hand, it's clear that the United States is not in compliance with these standards, particularly with respect to the legal profession. Now, I should drop a footnote here and say that there is an ambiguous uh, qualification to the standards as they apply to lawyers that says to the extent the standards are in tension with national rules about professional secrecy, they may not apply full bore. But the last time the US had a peer review from the Financial Action Task Force, they were held to be not in compliance. And the reason for that, of course, is that um, the Duty, the due diligence rules, the suspicious transaction reporting rules, and the anti-tipping rules that apply to banks with respect to potential money laundering transactions uh, do not apply explicitly and directly to lawyers. And in fact, the lawyer confidentiality rules may sometimes forbid uh, some of the activities that these rules require. What's the actual requirement for a lawyer to disclose? So attorney-client conversations related mm -hmm. to the attorney-client relationship yeah. are privileged. Yes. But if a client explains an intent to commit a crime, yeah. then another duty is provoked? Well, the rules in the US vary from state to state on this. This is the, one of the points on which you see the most variation among the ethics codes. In a substantial number of states, including New York, but not including California, the rules give the lawyer discretion, not a duty, but discretion to disclose information necessary to prevent the client from committing a crime. Wait, wait, so it's the lawyer's choice? It's the lawyer's choice under the rules as we now have them, with the exception of a couple of states. But uh, in almost every state, uh, the disclosure option to prevent client harm is permission, not a duty. By laying out the legal means yeah. of, of hiding money for a legal purpose, yeah. you could be explaining how to do it for an illegal purpose. Yeah. So this is where the due diligence idea comes in. This is one, one of the objections that John Lubsdorf and I have to the transcripts that we looked at. Presumably we would set up a, 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 a little bit of a series of owners to try and, again, protect privacy as much as anything else. Yeah. So company A is owned by company B, which is owned jointly by company C and D, and your party owns uh, all of or the majority of the shares of C and D. So we, we create several companies. Yes. The lawyers went ahead and volunteered all this advice without ascertaining fundamental facts that they would need to know in order to see whether there was any possibility that there was something lawful the client could do. So they didn't insist on even knowing the name of the minister. They didn't insist on knowing the country, who made the payments, what exactly the payments were for. Um, if there's any possibility that you can legitimately advise a would-be client like this, then it would depend on a variety of facts that have to be surfaced before you start to go ahead and give information. Why don't we discuss a bit more about the anti-money laundering regime? Yeah. What are the main laws in place right now that limit the ability of people to, as you described, to clean their money by moving it around? Well, there are a lot of laws. This is a tightly regulated area. And as I say, there are not a lot of loopholes in this area. The core federal 
money laundering law is a criminal statute um, that has a lot of provisions, but the key elements of the core crime for which there are very extensive criminal penalties are first conducting a transaction that is designed to hide either the source of the funds or the identity of the owner. And then secondly, knowledge by the person conducting the transaction that the funds come from an illegal activity. And when you say illegal, what do you mean? Is it, does it have to be illegal in the state where it took place? Does it have to be illegal were it to take place in the United States? Yeah, so there, there's some technical issues there. But in essence, almost you know, any, most crimes that we could think of that we associate money laundering with involving both kind of organized business crimes like you know, drug trafficking, human trafficking, or public corruption like bribery are clearly included within the statute. And as long as part of the transaction occurs in the US, then it doesn't matter that the crime doesn't violate US law if it violates the law of a foreign country. Recently in the news, there's been a lot of information about the so-called Panama Papers. What was it that took place there? So we had a law firm in Panama that apparently specialized in, we, we can't call it money laundering because we don't know for sure the extent to which it was legal or unlawful, but maybe I suppose they would call it asset protection, right? And catering to high net worth individuals, many of whom were in public positions or highly exposed positions who wanted secrecy for their assets. So and it was helping important individuals, wealthy individuals, as you mentioned, some heads of state, move their money out of the country and into different instruments. Yes. And what happened there was, we don't know how or, or why, but this private confidential information was dumped and leaked into the public. Yeah, yeah, and you know, that's a risk, that's a prudential risk, right, that uh, people, People, uh, people take when they want secrecy, right? You can, it's not enough to look at the rules. It's not enough to assess the trustworthiness of the lawyers. Uh, you have to consider the entire organization and the possibility that there may be a defector or a leaker uh, within the organization. And that's very difficult to do. I, I mean, I think there are two interesting takeaways for me from uh, the Panama Papers. So one is that if you're a rich person with something to hide, um, you may not be able to rely on your lawyers for as much confidentiality as they say they can provide. Because even if the lawyers are loyal, and even if the applicable rules are very tight with respect to confidentiality, there's always the possibility of an indignant whistleblower who will disclose, probably in violation of the law. Um, but there's a, lot of, there's, there's a lot of forces that are making it difficult to keep this information confidential as a practical matter. And of course, the larger the organization gets, the more the potential disclosures uh, there are. So, you know, there's a cautionary note for, um, that I think most of us would regard as a healthy effect. Uh, but here's another interesting thing from a perspective of, you know, my business, which is legal ethics. Um, interesting what this and also the global witness sting says about the rationale for privilege and confidentiality. So attorney-client privilege and confidentiality enables lawyers to promise more secrecy than other business professionals 
So that's a big marketing advantage for them. And they get a lot of business because of that. Why do we give them that marketing advantage? It's the kind of subsidy that we give them. We give them that subsidy because we want to encourage people to seek legal advice. And the reason we want to encourage people to seek legal advice is that we think that it has socially desirable effects. We think Once they know what the law is, maybe they'd be more likely to follow. More likely to comply, yeah. So that the effect of legal advice, the assumption is, is to make people more socially responsible. Well, okay, here is a huge body of evidence, or at least a striking body of evidence, two bodies, right? Global Witness and the Panama Papers, in which we see lawyers, we see, first of all, clients attracted to the secrecy that lawyers can offer for dubious reasons. And we see lawyers not doing much at all to channel their impulses along socially responsible passes, but on the contrary, exacerbating some of their antisocial impulses. Is this behavior we want to subsidize? Uh, and we're subsidizing with these strong confidentiality rules. Uh, so instead of coming to the lawyer and the lawyer telling them, this is a crime, here's the reasons why you can't do it, yeah. the lawyer's taking a different approach and saying, this is a crime, here's the way that you can go about doing it. Well, in the Global Witness interviews, and maybe in Panama Papers too, the lawyers didn't even go that far. They said, okay, well let's talk about how to do this without any consideration of the criminal liability that might be attached to it. So, I mean, the striking thing about the Global Witness interviews was that the, the behavior was very probably criminal and the lawyers didn't even tell them that for breaches of confidentiality that are altruistically motivated, that is whistleblowing, basically. You rarely find a lawyer disciplined for unauthorized whistleblowing. Um, but nevertheless, the rules do prohibit it. And if the, the breach were high profile enough, uh, like the Panama Papers, I'm pretty confident that we would see some serious discipline. And that could be to the level of disbarment. Oh, yes, absolutely. In the practice, there are, there are going to be red flags. What types of, of, of red flags should lawyers be on the, on the alert for? Okay. So the approach to this, both from the Financial Action Task Force and from the bar, although the bar doesn't have any rules that regulate this directly, it does have voluntary guidelines with respect to anti-money laundering. And the approach in both cases is a risk-based approach, right? So it's not a categorical check the box that you have to do for every client. Uh, it's a facts and circumstances judgment about when the risks and the stakes are large enough uh, to warrant some special effort to make sure that we're not facilitating criminality. And the special effort, the duty to do the spe special effort is triggered by a variety of signals, right? So here are some of the indicators. Uh, first of all, any situation in which the client is drawing on large amounts of cash or indeed any type of assets that are disproportionate to the income generating potential of his business or job. If his name now would appear in connection with buying some real estate here and other items, it would look at least uh, very, very embarrassing. Right, because his, presumably his salary in uh, wherever it is would not cover the kinds of acquisitions he's well, For sure, that's the salary of a teacher here. Any scenario in which 
the client wants some unusual feature that might signal criminality, secrecy being the most important one. Uh, why, does the, why does the client want secrecy for the transaction? Uh, certain types of businesses or jobs are considered to be inherently risky. So if the client runs a gambling casino, for example, um, the gambling casinos have legitimate reasons to have lots of cash. So they are often asked by people who have lots of cash but no legitimate reasons to have it uh, to enter into relationships that involve laundering. So is there, are there additional diligence requirements yeah. when dealing with certain industries? Yeah. So these are all signals that trigger additional diligence uh, requ uh, requirements. Geography might be another signal, uh, too. I mean, the fact in the global witness scenario, they situated the minister in a West African country because there's a reputation there for corruption. Uh, within the United States, uh, certain types of transactions that come out of the Mexican border, for example, where there's lots of drug dealing and human trafficking, that would be a signal as well. So in these, you know, when you have enough of these facts and circumstances to indicate that the risk is significant, there's a duty to inquire. And the extent of this duty is going to depend on the magnitude of the stakes, but it's certainly going to start out with doing some, asking the client for basic information and verification of identity, residence, maybe bank references, uh, for example. Um, one standard thing to do in these situations is to do a so-called OFAC scan. So OFAC is the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Asset Control. They have a list of people that Treasury deems it to be unlawful for American citizens to do business with, so people associated with organized crime or terrorism. So that's a standard due diligence so move. Some background checks, some looking into of whether the person is exactly who they say they are. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, the, maybe the most important thing after you've done that preliminary thing is you want an explanation for the client of what the business purpose, the legitimate business purpose of this transaction is. And particularly if it involves secrecy, what the legitimate business purpose for the secrecy is. And then that explanation should be plausible on its face, and it may require some substantiation or verification. And of course, this is the type of verification that is standard in securities due diligence. So you know, lawyers know how to do this. The global witness scenario is a classic example of money laundering, right? So we have a corrupt official in a developing country that's accumulated a fortune from bribery. And let's say it's sitting in accounts in his own country. So, that's not particularly safe for him. The banks in his country may not be financially sound. And if the government changes, they might come after him for the money, right? So he wants to move it out of his currency risk, country, political risk. Yeah, exactly, right? So he wants to move it out of his country. He wants to move it out of his country in a way in which um, he won't encounter problems in the country to which he moves it and in which it won't be reachable by his home country. So how does he do that? Well, one way, of course, is that transfers it to an American shell corporation and buys the property that he wants in the name of the shell corporation. And then maybe to make it more difficult for the home country to follow it, he'll route it through a third jurisdiction that has banking laws that are strict on secrecy but lax on money laundering. 
like and that's a Caribbean country or... Yeah, and that's basically the kind of suggestion that was made. All right, let's take a quick break. For those who are earning MC Lee credit for this course, the code is 070829. Again, that's 070829. And now back to the interview. Uh, now, you know, another example that's common is uh, you have a transaction between uh, a person that has very large amounts of cash but no legitimate explanation for how he got them. For example, a drug dealer, for example, that has millions of dollars in his attic. Okay, not safe, not convenient. Uh, so he'd like to transform that into some less suspicious kinds of assets like, say, securities and real estate. Uh, say he knows a dishonest person who owns a casino, right, who has lots of cash and has a legitimate explanation for having lots of cash. So he buys some securities in real estate from the casino owner. The casino owner may already have owned them or he may have gone out and bought them specially for the transaction. Uh, the drug dealer pays cash to the casino owner. The casino owner mingles the cash that the drug dealer paid with his legitimate cash. Uh, and then he gets a premium on the sale in return for not complying with the cash disclosure rules. We talked about a number of red flags. Maybe you could give us some advice as a lawyer. When your clients start raising red flags and you dig deeper and you find suspicious or illegal activity, what is your obligation then? How does a lawyer ethically separate themselves from a client or separate themselves from an engagement that may be unethical? Well, so your first duty is to make sure that you're treating the client fairly, right? So you don't want to unfairly assume that the client's project is illegal when it's not. The client is entitled to the benefit of the doubt. And you want to make sure you want to give the client any information that you can about how the client can accomplish her legitimate purposes once you've determined that they're legitimate. You want to make sure that the client understands what she can't do without incurring criminal liability and that you're very clear about that. Now, if the client wants you to do something that you've concluded that you can't do, I mean, I think it's you know, fairly simple. You just tell the client you can't do it and um, that's the end of the relationship. You have complete discretion to fire a client when you've concluded that the project would expose you to a risk of criminal liability. It, this ain't for me. My standards are higher. Just yeah, but that's fair enough, it's good. What? Therefore I said we have to be very frank, so... Uh, right. Yeah. That's yeah. that, that do you have, do you know anybody who would be able I to do so? I don't think so, and I wouldn't recommend it either. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Because those persons would be insulted. What would your suggestion be? Uh, is there a way to tighten this? Is there a way to reduce this type of money laundering? As far as ethics reforms go, I, I think the main reform that I would like to see is 
a clarification of what I regard as existing duties. That is, I would like it to be clearer than it is that the prohibition on assisting illegal activity in Rule 1.2D applies to prospective as well as actual clients and requires due diligence uh, and also requires an affirmative statement to the client that you will not assist illegal activity. I think those are all implicit in the rule, but uh, not everybody agrees with that. So there's some need for clarification. Okay, third reform that is interesting to discuss uh, and would be highly controversial is suspicious activity reporting. So, so here we're talking about confidentiality. Yeah, we're talking about an inroad on confidentiality. And so the international standards and the rules that are applied to bankers in these situations require not only that you report suspicious activity, uh, but that you not tip the client that you've reported suspicious, uh, suspicious activity. You know, this is not something that lawyers are going to be enthusiastic about and I think are legitimately troubled, particularly by the vagueness and the, the low bar for suspicion. The, um, nevertheless, you, know, you could have a less radical alternative uh, that would build on the existing permission in states like New York to disclose known ongoing or planned criminal activity by the client. Okay, so you could have a rule that, you know, that could apply just to money laundering or more broadly that would mandate the disclosure of known ongoing or planned criminal activity by the client, that wouldn't be nearly so radical a step, and the requirement that you actually know of the activity, presumably after due diligence, is um, much less radical than the, the standard that you just suspected. One other question that's raised yeah. by this global witness sting yeah. was related to confidentiality, but not exactly. So when we talk about confidentiality, that's the confidentiality of the client. Yeah. Here we have people going into lawyers' offices, in a sense, recording the lawyer's conversation. Yes. Is there a confidentiality issue there? Does a lawyer have some type of expectation of privacy in his advice to a client? Well, it's an interesting question. So if it had been a real client, then there's a fairly simple answer that confidentiality belongs to the client. Right? It's, a, it's for the client to control disclosure of confidential information. The client is free to disclose the lawyer's advice or what the lawyer says. Uh, it's only the lawyer that's bound to keep the client's statements confidential. So if this had been a real client, yes. that client could then go to the New York Times and say, look, I went to that lawyer. He told me I had a money launder. Now I feel guilty about it. Here's what took place. Yes. Right. So at least the confidentiality norms would not prevent that, or, and privilege would not apply, uh, if the, at least the client could waive, uh, could waive the privilege. Now, I think if there's an ethics issue, it arises from the fact that the investigator lied, right? The investigator lied his way into the office, wasn't a real client, and then the investigator secretly taped, lawful under New York law, one of the reasons they chose New York, they were thinking about Delaware, but in Delaware, uh, secret taping is illegal. There is an ethics issue there, and you know, the, um, somebody has suggested that the rules that apply to investigative journalists, that, that there's an association of journalists that has ethics rules that say that, you know, it should only use deception when it's necessary, right? When it's the only effective way of getting the information. Well, I think that standard is probably met here. 
For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.